right, so here we are. Um, so thanks to you all for being here today and being part of this journey as we're kicking off this new initiative, Emancipatory Education Now. And thanks to anyone who's watching this live or watching the recording later. Um, so my name is Brian. I work in the Dean's office, well, a part of the Dean staff on the, uh, the Lurie College of Education at San Jose State University. And so I'm here just to kind of kick things off, just to introduce uh, what this is. So we're calling this Emancipatory Education Now. And the idea behind this is that we wanted to have an initiative where we're bringing together students uh, from across our college and across the university to really engage in deep critical dialogues to really examine uh, what emancipatory education looks like, how it's enacted. Um, so really critically examining um, you know, policies, practices, research that uh, are upholding systems of oppression within education, but also those that are uh, creating opportunities for uh, more liberatory um, experiences and opportunities within education. So we have our team of co-hosts here, so we're going to have them introduce themselves in a second. Um, there, I guess before we do that, just wanted to share. So part of the reason that we wanted to, to have this initiative specifically is that uh, last year or earlier this year, actually feels like last year, earlier this year in 2020, uh, the College of Education established a new strategic plan. And part of that strategic plan focused on um, talking about who we are and what we do. And so I uh, just want to read that real quick. So our kind of identity statement is that at the Lurie College of Education, we prepare transformative educators, counselors, therapists, school and community leaders. We do this through an emancipatory approach across our teaching, scholarship and service in four priority areas, community engaged, culturally sustaining, interdisciplinary and holistic. And so um, that statement and those areas are kind of what are driving a lot of the, the conversations, the initiatives that we're, we're putting in place. And so this initiative was kind of an extension from that conversation that we had last year. Um, so that's enough from me. So now I want to turn it over to our student co-hosts. Um, I'm not going to read you all, all alphabetically in order. I'm just going to look at the participant list here. So we have uh, Leslie joining us from the EDD doctoral program, Anne who's joining us from the counselor education department, Gabby who's joining us from sociology, Jackie who's joining us from child and adolescent development, and Vincent who's joining us from child and adolescent development. So I want to have them introduce themselves to you all watching live and watching this later by sharing uh, uh, their, uh, their name story, which was an exercise that we did as we were going through our kind of orientation and uh, to one another uh, initially a little while ago. And then they'll talk about some of the, the topics that they're planning to dive into and some of our upcoming dialogues. So that's it. I'm gonna turn my mic off after this. So if one of you wants to, to start off by sharing your name story and then you all can take over from there. Would anyone like to go first? Okay. I'll... Oh, you're mute, Leslie. Something's okay. happening with my oh, mic. Okay. Do you want me to start? I can start. Go ahead. All right. So thank you. Uh, welcome, co-hosts. I'm so excited about this initiative. My name is Leslie Marie Tenson. I am a um, second year doctoral student in the educational leadership program. And <clears throat> my first name, Leslie, spelled L-E-S-L-Y-E, um, as far as I know, comes from being named after an actress that my parents liked, named Leslie Ann Warren. Um, my middle name is Marie, after my grandmother's aunt, who her first name was Marie, and when my grandmother was born, 
her mom's sister um, named her. So she, my mother's, sorry, my grandmother's middle name is Marie. And then when my grandmother had my mom, which is the oldest, she named her as her first name. So it was middle name, first name. And so when I was born, I was given the name Marie as my middle name. So that's my mom's first name. And my last name, Tenson, um, I'm not sure of the origins, but my father um, was born and raised in Mississippi, which is um, and has been one of the states where, one of many states where slavery was legalized and regularly used. And so as a black woman, um, my, my lineage here in the United States leads me to um, the history of enslavement. So not really sure exactly how the name was given, but um, it is more than likely inher an inherited name from um, that history of um, slavery in our country. And so <clears throat> unlike, I'm sure that's not um, different than many other Black people that have been living here in the United States, um, but just understanding and recognizing the role that that also plays, both within um, who we become and also access we might end up having to um, an educational um, system or freedom therein. So I'm really excited about this and I'm gonna hand it off to, can I pick who's next or no? <laughs> go ahead, whoever wants to go. I was just gonna comment real quick. Um, I really love the way that you emphasize like that your name spelled with a Y. And you know, that's something that people don't really think it's important, but mm -hmm. it is. And so thank you for making sure that there's like value in that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I can go next. Um, my full name is uh, Jacqueline Lopez Rivas. Um, so what I've heard about my name story is that initially I was supposed to be named Milagro, which is uh, Spanish for miracle, or Guadalupe, which is also religious ties. And I'm glad that I ended up with Jacqueline just because I'm not like super religious affiliated. Um, but the name Jacqueline itself, uh, looking at the French meaning, it means may God, may God protect. And, you know, even though I'm not like super religious, it's still something that uh, resonates with just like my identity. And also with that, um, we also talked about how like nicknames, um, like of how we feel about those. And for me, I feel like people do butcher Jacqueline and it's just like, okay, like Jackie is just way easier to be introduced as. And um, I have like a lot of nicknames that are tied to specific stories or specific people. And I really like that, that I have that connection to different people. Um, and then in terms of last names, I know Rivas is like, it's uh, Spanish, like from Spain. Um, but I don't know, I don't know that much about like my, my lineage in terms of Mexico and just my ancestry. Uh, something on my list to do though, for sure, yeah. Yeah, that resonates of like 
being potentially having a list of names. And I, I recall that my mom wanted to name me Dion after Dion Warwick, which mm. was a singer, right? So, <laughs> and ultimately we don't know how they make those decisions, but yeah, <laughs> we certainly start to embody whatever our name was that was given to us. So yeah. Yeah, it's definitely part of our identity. Oh, that's so funny. My mom also, she wanted to name me August, like Augustine. So she, I guess she wanted some kind of like gender. I don't know. She wanted me to have like a cool nickname. So like Samantha, then I could be called Sam. So names like that. But I'm glad she wants Gabby. Gabby. I can go next. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing Jackie or Jacqueline. I don't know. I think. It's too bad that we have to shorten our names or we have to change them for other people just to make it easier for people to say. Yeah. Um, it's always really cool when people can hear their name said correctly. Like when I worked with kids, they would get really excited when I would say their name correctly. And I like, yeah, there was just this one kid named Jose that I remember. And he really, like, he was like, oh, you're saying it the right way. You're not saying like Joseph or anything like that. Or <laughs> So I think they take that. It's really nice to hear your name said nice. And I think you get recognized when people say your name. Because it makes yeah. a big part of it. So my full name is Gabriella Gupta. Um, and kind of like Jacqueline's, um, my first name, it means in God, I believe. So I think in like, it means having faith. And my parents just really liked that name. And um, yeah, and I think they also like the nickname that, like, that came with it. I don't, I didn't really think of that, but that was a big thing they thought of was like, what are kids going to call her in the playground and stuff like that. Um, and they purposely gave me um, a Latina name because my mom is from Colombia and they wanted me to make sure that one of their kids had like an Indian name and then one of the kids had um, a Latinx name. So my brother has an Indian name, an Indian first name, and I have the Latina first name. And it's just interesting seeing how we both navigate the world a little bit differently, especially when we got to India. It's just a little bit different the look he gets versus the look I get. Um, and yeah, my last name comes from my dad, um, who he's from India. So that is my full story. And it's funny because my mom's maiden name also starts with a G. So if I ever incorporate it all, I might be a triple G, which I think is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's nice to have um, initials that go together. I know. I even know like some families will name all the kids with like the same initial and stuff like that. So yeah. Mm-hmm. I love what everyone is saying too um, about essentially the theme that like names are really important and having them recognized is important and matters and having them pronounced correctly is important and matters. Um, and I think that, you know, showing the import of someone's name is a way of showing them respect. Um, and so I really appreciate all of you sharing these perspectives. Um, I can also share next if that's cool. Um, so my first name is Anne. Um, it has some meanings. None of them have been that important to me because um, I think my parents just chose it because they liked it. Um, my middle name is Kathleen, which I think is um, kind of the same, just pretty. I like it. Um, then my last name is Lockmiller, which um, is a little bit interesting to me because um, it's of German origin um, and I'm actually of German and Irish, um, I suppose, lineage, but I've always felt a much stronger connection to the Irish side and Lockmiller isn't Irish. 
at all, but um, any connection that I've had, which is not that strong, but any connection I've had um, is more through my mom's side, which is Irish. Um, but I typically in my day-to-day -day life actually go by Annie, which is um, a nickname, like you mentioned, Jackie, um, or Jacqueline. Do you prefer Jackie or Jacqueline? Actually, sorry, I wanna double check. That's really interesting. I don't, whatever. I think Jackie. Yeah. Jackie. All right. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, yeah, Annie is the name that I've always like identified with more just because it's what I introduce myself. It's what I call myself on a day-to-day, day-to-day, day-to-day basis. Um, but like on official, all official records and everything, it's Anne. So it's Anne is almost to me kind of felt like an alternate identity of like when I'm in a formal space, when I'm um, kind of worried, like thinking about my presentation, I'm Anne. And then every day I'm like, oh, I'm just Annie. Um, so that is my name story. Yeah, it's interesting that you touched on that. Like it's very, it, it can be very setting based you know, between is it formal or informal. So I think that's why I'm going more with Jackie just because like, I feel like we're a smaller group that we can connect like that. But if it was like a networking event or uh, event, I would be like Jacqueline. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, while setting is important, I think it's also like, there are ways in which um, people who might assume things about you based on your gender or, um, or even when you correct them, they may still feel like I'm going to say or call you whatever I want, um, which is part of that disrespect layer that I think um, we should continue to push back on. Um, you deserve to be acknowledged and addressed by the name that you asked to be addressed by, period. Yeah, and that goes into pronouns too. Yeah, adding on to the conversation about pronouns, it's definitely really important to always introduce um, your name with your pronouns as well, because it like reduces the stigma for folks who may go by a different pronoun than um, he or she. And Anne, I really like that you pointed out how you had like different, you know, like sometimes in certain circumstances, you feel more comfortable like presenting yourself with this name or this other name, or like, you know, Anne versus Annie, because because I feel like I can also relate to that when I'm like juggling between um, Vincent, Vince, or like Vin or Viv. And um, yeah. Um, so I'm gonna introduce myself now. My name is, my whole name is Vivian um, Tao Vu. So my first name, Vivian, um, is my legal name, which I don't really go by that often, but I do like to talk about it because my dad picked it intentionally because there are some letters in that name that is similar to his name. So it kind of like spells out his name also. And he was really particular about picking names with V's because he believes it's really important to have like, you know, the initials in our family to be like VV. So like my last name and my first name, the initials are VV and like my siblings and my dad as well. So it's like a little pattern going on in our family. And my middle name is a Vietnamese first name and it stands for respectful parents. And I believe that it shapes my identity a lot because whenever I'm doing something, I always think about like my parents and how they're gonna like respond or feel whenever I'm doing something. And I always, you know, take that respect into like mine. So definitely it shapes who I am. 
And my last name is also Vietnamese last name is VU or VU. Sometimes people pronounce it wrong and it could mean something else different in Vietnamese, but definitely like I try to correct folks. And as for my preferred name, Vincent, which I go by now um, pretty often, I picked it myself, taking into consideration how my dad wanted um, our names to be VV. And it still keeps on the pattern of, you know, having the initials and the same letters spelling out each other's names in the family. So that's the story of my name. Thank you, Vincent, for mentioning um, our gender pronouns. I, and when you said that, I am seeing that mine disappeared off of my name. So I was trying to figure out why it edits. But um, anyway, I think it is definitely important to mention that and acknowledge that. And so I appreciate you sharing that both with us and with the larger community. My um, gender pronouns are she and her. Yeah, and I think sometimes there's like on Zoom, you can't, there's no pronoun section. So the way you go around that is like, um, when you go into your Zoom account, you change your last name to have your pronouns and then it will like automatically be there. Thank you for that, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. My pronouns are she, hers as well. Thank you, Vincent, for bringing that up. And I think BV looks really cool too, because it also looks like a W sometimes. <laughs> like, I don't know. It looks like a superhero thing, BV. <laughs> well, that's the Wu Ting too, just to let you know. <laughs> if anyone likes Wu Ting, um, my pronouns are she, her. <laughs> I as well go by she, her. I forgot to say my pronouns earlier, but my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and he, him, is. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm now curious, that we've kind of. Name, like what, what, what is the other V name that they pick for your sibling? The other V name? For your sibling. Oh, Vanessa. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, thought, I was thinking Victoria. I was like, cause there are so little names of these. Okay, that's a nice thing. So in thinking about our introductions, the, the goal for our, um, is this a podcast or live or I don't know what we call this. <laughs> is it a webinar, a radio show? But anyway, so uh, <laughs> sorry, we can talk about that offline. Um, but in thinking about that, right, our, uh, our goal is to talk about emancipatory education. So what do you hear when you think about those words and our theme of emancipatory education now. I can go first. Um, ultimately, the first thing that just like came to my mind is just uh, freedom. So for me, it, it really is like um, giving giving students and children in general, just like that freedom and their education to really be comfortable with their identity and creating those spaces and like um, not just the spaces, but the connections with the teachers, the staff, everyone that's part of their environment. Um, and that actually touches on what I would like to speak on, which is trauma, the concept of trauma-informed schools, just to have that approach and deepen the connection and um, understand a child beyond their student role and just kind of look at their whole identity.
Uh, yeah, Jackie, I agree that um, I also think about freedom and I specifically think about um, the freedom to choose whatever they want to do, whatever they want to be, whatever they want to learn about, whatever path they want to pursue. And the fact that um, the way education currently functions, um, that is not available to all students. Um, there are many students who by a variety of factors are barred or discouraged from pursuing certain paths or um, having access to certain resources. And so in my mind, emancipatory education is reversing um, or abolishing and changing um, those systems so that such barriers do not exist for any students. Yes. Yeah, that's really important. It's just, there's this whole thing about, you know, our risk factors and how to build resilience and how to really just support children and it starts at a really young age you know mm -hmm. at, like in utero yeah <laughs> it, it starts yeah. you gotta gotta be on that yeah when i think about emancipatory education I think about the word freedom, but I also think about liberation and mm -hmm. liberation around our ability to move past systems of oppression, specifically how those, how our educational system has been set up in a way to teach us about white folks and reinforce white um, ways of thinking and doing and being. And in essence, how that might be, um, how that is completely oppressive to many students mm -hmm. um, at all levels of the institution. We're all college and um, master's and doctoral students and still potentially facing these same hurdles when college, the higher ed is supposed to be this space where we're able to achieve real freedoms. But we might think about policies and practices and, and um, even the mission statements of schools and how they don't match up with how students are treated and how they're learning, um, the topics that they're learning about show themselves or how they are able to see themselves within the curriculum. I think that's something that's very important. Um, and so just to mirror what some of you have said, our ability to connect, um, but also to become free through our learning and to determine what we want to learn about and expand upon is, is so critical. So um, I just wanted to share that I was resonating with many of the descriptions you already had. Leslie, when you mentioned, um, when you mentioned um, diversity in like education and like seeing yourself in the curriculum, I thought about the recent bill that California passed on ethnic studies. And I thought that was really interesting just so, you know, hopefully future students will be able to see themselves reflected in the curriculum. And that's what I think of when I think of emancipatory education, being able to see yourself represented in the stuff that you're learning in class and beyond class so you can apply it. Vincent, can you say a little bit more about the bill? So what was it about ethnic studies? So I think the requirement is um, in for college students, I believe, for college students to have it in their GE classes that they need to take um, one ethnic studies related classes 
starting 2023 or 2024. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool because I listened to a podcast by Code Switch and they were doing, because it was actually like the 50th anniversary of the SFSU ethnic studies, the strike that happened there. And as I understood it, it's in all the CSU campuses. So I think there are like 23 campuses or something like that. And it's the biggest um, public university system in the country. So I think it's really cool that everyone in order to graduate is going to have to be educated in some shape or form about race. And I think it's really important because I don't know if you guys saw, this is also kind of related that our president is calling um, anti-American and barring government agencies from learning about white privilege and things like that. So I think it's really important to learn about those things. Yeah, and just for our audience, the bill is Assembly Bill 1460, which was signed by Governor Gavin Newsom um, last month. And I believe you're correct, Vincent, um, the students for the students that will be entering the system in 23-24 academic year will have this as part of their curriculum. But one of the things that I think is important to note is that um, people have at least, at minimum, been fighting for this requirement since 1968. And the fact that we are only being given three of 120 units for a bachelor's degree, um, and that people were in opposition to giving over three units <laughs> to talk about and amplify the stories of Black people, Indigenous people, Asian American people, Latinx people, is just part of that piece around oppression within education, right? I mean, there are active, there were active movements to resist this change. And um, I think it's sad that we had to go to the state legislature to require ethnic studies in our degree program. I really, really, really think that that is sad. So thank you all for sharing your pieces on this because it's a, a definitely a hot topic. Um, and we'll see how each university will go about implementing and really holding themselves to the commitment of doing that for um, the students, right? But it's not simply just to tell stories. Um, there's research that shows that students have better success outcomes when they're able to learn about themselves if they are a student from one of those backgrounds, but also the emphasis on student success for all. So um, when we're able to dismantle systems of oppression, all of us end up becoming free. Um, and so it's important that we see that our um, liberation is embedded within each other. Yeah, I mean, that's okay. First, I just want to say 1968, that's way too long. Like, we're in 2020. I'm not, I was born in 1994. Like, <laughs> that's older than me. Like, I can't believe that. And um, yeah, like what you're saying, like, even though we have like our own individual experiences, like, we are experiencing this as a collective. And um, I, I don't really know much about like how when, pol when policies are passed or bills, like how long it takes to implement, but 2023, that's three years from now. Um, so, I mean, the universities definitely have like time to create a plan to implement that. And I really hope 
they take full advantage of that because when you're in higher education, you're just, you're, you're developing people to, to, to be in these full-time roles, whatever role that may be, and just to really have that cultural competence and just um, have an awareness of like all ethnicities and uh, aside from your own personal biases and just be able to um, create a community in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Leslie, so much for sharing all of that. Um, yeah, and Jackie as well. Um, and so I want to like echo and thank you for everything you've said. Um, and also, I think that it's just like, it's not enough. Um, you know, it's a great step. I personally think that um, ethnic studies or something like it at an age appropriate level should be taught at every level, like from kindergarten on, like it shouldn't be by the time you reach college. And Leslie, as you said, three out of 120 units by the time you've reached college, which not everyone even goes to college. Um, and so I think this should be really baked into our education system and should replace like so many of the Eurocentric whitewash narratives that are sold from like the time we enter kindergarten, probably even earlier. Yeah, there is a bill. I don't know if it finished. Oh, go ahead, Gubby. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, uh, something exciting. And I like that you brought up the little kids about how little, how I think kids of all ages have the capacity to learn and that we need to create a more inclusive curriculum. And the Alamark School District, the ARUSD actually just passed ethnic studies earlier this summer. Um, community members, one of the ethnic studies teacher, Juan Gamboa, he teaches in the Chicano Studies Department. They work together with parents, with community members, ex-students to get ethnic studies passed. So that's really awesome because that's a K through eight school. So they, so the Alamark School District serves elementary school and middle school in the east side of San Jose, which has um, a good number of Latino kids and Vietnamese kids as well. So a lot of kids of color are going to be able to get that opportunity to get a more inclusive curriculum that doesn't have just missions. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, but it, the necessity, right, is not that each district, I think there are what, a thousand school districts or something in California, that each district wakes up and thinks, oh, we should do this, right? <laughs> um, and so there, there is a bill, as far as I know, I don't know the bill number, but there was a bill following the same path through the state legislature this year, looking at implementing, um, ethnic studies education within the preschool to 12 um, grade curricula. Um, I, I wasn't tracking that bill, so I don't know the exact number of it, um, unfortunately. And I also don't know the status of it as of the end of our um, legislative year, which just ended in August. So, um, so perhaps that's something we could even think about including as a topic as we go through um, our show this our radio show or podcast slash zoom meeting this semester <laughs> all of the above <laughs> it's just it's really interesting that we're talking about all these bills that are passed and are starting to be like um strategized on and then for gabby to bring up the fact what our president <laughs> just did or had you know, and just the whole thing about anti-racism training and it's, it's really, it's really just this like 
I'll, I want to say like spectrum and just kind of like this back and forth, like tug of war and just, I don't know. So I, I personally am really happy to be part of this initiative and just have these conversations and really it emphasizes how important it is and how, how much uh, we can do together to like create change in the future, even now. Did everyone share their um, definition or ideas around emancipatory education? I think I just want to echo, I agree with everything you guys said about liberation and about freedom as well. I think um, emancipatory education to me just means not being able to have agency and choice. And I think, I don't know, where I got this quote from, I think it was from my teacher that's teaching the sociology of education. But once you are free, you're, the purpose of freedom is to go and help liberate others. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the idea that liberation is a constant thing and that, that we're all intertwined as somebody else said earlier. So that nobody is limited by their zip code, by the language that they speak, by the country they come from, by their immigration status, that everybody can get quality to a good education. Because I think education is a really special place to be formed both like intellectually, but also socially and to be socialized. So I hope that every kid can get that opportunity, which is unfortunately not the case as of right now. Thank you, Gabby. Also, um, I don't know if people I think Leslie you mentioned it um did we also want to talk a little bit about what like this topics that we wanted to ja oh Jackie I think you mentioned it as well the um trauma-informed schooling uh I don't remember if Vincent or Gabby you um if you mentioned those yet if you didn't I forgot I'm sorry future topics for each week is that what you want us to mention? And I mean, I'm I'm really I'm really curious. Yeah, and I don't know if I talked about mine. Um, the like a topic that I really want to talk about. Um, I feel like is a little bit similar to something you mentioned, Leslie. But um, I wanted to talk about like soft power and moral value and how that's cultivated in children um, and just the activities that they participate in. Um, and how children are conditioned to like behave in ways that maintain systems of power, essentially. Um, I really want to like talk a little bit about Lisa Delpit's book, um, Teaching Other People's Children, which has just like really, of all the pieces I've read while being on the education path, that one has stuck with me the most. Um, and I think it's very interesting and an important um, aspect of emancipatory education. And did you say soft power? Uh, soft power. Okay. Yeah. Um, so basically just like skills, like um, how to behave, like how little kids learn how to behave in a way that the teacher goes, oh, that's such a good kid and stuff and kind of this cyclical reinforcement of, because if the teacher is like, oh, this kid is such a good kid, then they're gonna treat them well. And then the kid will get that positive reinforcement um, and be like, oh, I'm such a good kid. Um, 
and you know a lot of that like um but what behavior makes a kid a good kid what behavior makes a kid a smart kid um and the fact is uh that that can often also um be denoted by like where one stands in a system of privilege and oppression. Yeah, so like what behaviors are acceptable are determined by, you know, the race and race and gender and background of the teacher who then has a certain ideal around how students show up in their room. And there's certainly a lot of evidence of how that can also contribute that same bias contributes to higher suspension rates among students who are Black and Latinx, for example. Um, to just add to that, I would love to think about us talking specifically about um, educational practices in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think that there are, um, at least I've seen in the, in the Twitter sphere and other social media, some very damaging um, educational practices around camera on versus camera off, wearing certain attire during class, completely staring at the screen for the eight hour day, right? And these kinds of um, kind of insidious ways in which uh, we're expected to or feel as teachers entitled to govern students' behaviors, even in light of a pandemic. And even in light of the fact that most of us are working outside of our home or a corner in our garage, or even the assumptions that districts might have had about, you know, giving someone a hotspot and thinking that that's going to solve all of the other uh, factors that are contributing to um, our inability to really just continue with business as usual. Um, and I think part of emancipatory education could also be um, removing a lot of those constraints that about how schools do things, right? That we're just holding on tooth and nail to how we do things instead of like completely unthinking everything now that the pandemic is here. Um, and I think that that could serve as a potential model for what we do in the future because we can't ever go back in time but how we move forward post COVID, if that will ever even be a thing, right? Is, is something that's, that's critical as well. And since you mentioned Lisa Delphit's book, I wanna mention um, Bettina Love's book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, which is a, um, which could be something I think totally we could bring into this uh, particular forum to talk about. So can you repeat that one more time, Leslie? So I can yes, Dr. Bettina Love, B-E-T-T-I-N-A, love, like love someone. Um, and the book is called We Want to Do More Than Survive. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I love the point that both of you, um, you both made about just how I think school functions in a very strict and policing way, whether it's students policing each other in the classroom or teachers policing the students and I think that even goes into higher education I read it was a tweet as all great thoughts start out um, and it was just <laughs> a professor that said that as they started out they were really strict about deadlines and they realized that they had to unlearn that and learn about just infusing more compassion into their work and taking into account people's circumstances and especially now I don't think 
I think no one, we do not start off in an evil, uh, even playing field at all. And I think that's being even ex more exacerbated now that not everyone has the same capacity and it's really hard to even make it to school. So I don't understand this whole thing, like Leslie saying about the camera always being on, always seeing me attentive. For me, if I was a teacher, I would just be happy that people showed up to the class. Yeah, this is something I've even seen in my profession that my students are like, when is the deadline? And I'm like, get it to me when you can. And, and even just, I'm thinking that, right? They're like, what do you mean get it to you when you can? Like just what I said, you know? So, <laughs> so we have certainly in our educational systems trained this way of doing things, right? And, um, and so, you know, why are we doing it that way? Why is this so regimented? What, what goal do we then have for our society around teaching people how to just follow orders, which is not something that I wanna do as an educator. I respect that. What about you, Vincent? What was your topic? Leslie remind me of a really good point um, about surveillance education and Gabby was elaborating on it as well. And it kind of reminded me of Michael Foucault's book on um, discipline and punish, the birth of the prison. And there seems to be, I remember learning about it in one of my classes where there are parallels between the system of education and the prison system that you can kind of see, kind of like mm -hmm. when you were talking about, you know, like when we're like in Zoom meetings and like professors are requiring their cameras on, like that is a form of surveillance or like why certain procedures exist in schools. It's like surveillance and kids are, you know, taught that from a very young age, whether it be lining up from like kindergarten or like, you know, behavior cards or like getting like, you know, certain like rewards and punishment based on how they're responding in class. And I think that's really interesting because it also ties into a topic that I would like to bring up on the school to prison pipeline and how, um, you know, uh, how stereotypes and microaggressions are upheld because of these biases that exist in society and how folks manifest them in the education system and policies and practices in schools. So definitely it ties into um, Anne's topic on, you know, um, soft power and just like, how do we like break down these um, walls in terms of policy and, you know, help students find their voices and educators to be more mindful about different identities. Yeah, I think that's an excellent, excellent point. And I wonder, I don't know if you've read uh, Monique Morris's book, Push Out, but it's a specific um, book that looks at the criminalization of Black girls in our education system. Mm -hmm. And I want to say within the last year or two, um, a, an accompanying documentary came out also by the same name, Push Out, and we have access to it through our library. So I'll I'll send you the link so you can at least watch the video, but it is amazing. It's amazing to see how terrible our system is. And it's equally amazing to see some of the great work that um, liberatory leaders are doing to um, undo a lot of that systemic um, harm. And so I, I'm really excited about our ability to do this talk show slash Zoom slash radio um, podcast together <laughs> um, because these are just critical times and critical moments of discourse um, that I think 
really demonstrate um, some of the some of the real problems that we have, but also the great opportunities that we have to get free. So, uh, Brian, I don't know if that's if that's good enough for us to wrap up now, or just want to check in with our moderator. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I mean, first of all, I just want to say thank you to you all again for just you know kind of like I said, embarking on this journey, you know, um, bringing this idea to life, um, and really appreciate you all just you know, starting by sharing your name stories again with each other and then with the, our viewers um, and just thinking about what that means within the context of education too, right? Just really acknowledging people um, by their names and how those things are connected to their identities and cultures and histories and, you know, um, and so many other things. And then, you know, I know I asked you all just to kind of give a preview of some topics that you all want to talk about. And then you got into a deep dive about ethnic studies and, um, you know, some of the some of the progress, but then also how some of it's been problematic in terms of where we're at now, too. So appreciate you all just just really diving right into it um, and getting into some, some critical dialogue um, and then sharing a preview of of what's in store for the rest of the semester. Um, I'm really looking forward to you all coming together over, you know, over the course of the semester and just diving deeper into each of those topics. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that this will be something that, um, you know, is really um, like a benefit, I guess, for our communities. So our thinking about our departments, our college, our university, our schools that we're working with, our nonprofit organizations that we're working with, our families, our local networks of people where this can really um, get a lot of this conversation going. So I uh, appreciate you all just being leaders uh, in that regard. So I think, yeah, with that, we're at eight o'clock. So I wanna be respectful of uh, your time and our viewers time. I guess I will say maybe just to wrap up as a call to action for those of you who are watching this, you got to hear all of our co-hosts share their name stories. And so now that you've kind of seen some examples of that, I would encourage all of you to do that yourself. So share your name stories with your classmates, with your families, with your colleagues. And I think you'd be surprised to see just what you learn about one another and also how much that kind of uh, positively influences your relationships with uh, all those folks. So I think that's it. I'm going to go ahead and shut off the live stream. But if our co-hosts, if you all can just stay on with me for a few minutes and then we'll call it a week. So our next uh, session will be actually on Monday, September 21st, and Gabby will be leading that dialogue for us. So we'll look forward to uh, folks joining us again in a couple of weeks. That's it. Take care, everyone. Stay hydrated. <laughs> yeah, definitely stay hydrated.